Welcome to Toddcasts by the Oslo Desk. The Oslo Desk Todd brings diverse perspectives to the table and creates practical content to help people of all backgrounds in Norway to live out their greatest potential. For our first season, we are interviewing female leaders with international backgrounds to highlight their achievements and their journey as immigrants and entrepreneurs. So far, women of color, whilst among us, remain invisible. So hear their name and know them. Hear their story. Uh, my name is Michelle Mpike. Um, I'm from Cape Town in South Africa. My background is in research. Uh, specifically social policy and education policy. Um, and I came to Norway as an Erasmus master's student at the University of Oslo. I founded Inclusive Books in 2018 after I completed my master's. Um, and the goal of the company is to diversify uh, children's literature, um, starting with Norway and hoping to expand to other countries. And it was just a response to the lack of diversity in the stories, um, in the characters, um, in the books that children have access to, as well as in the authors that write the stories that children have access to. How long have you moved in to Norway now? I've lived in Norway for about two and a half years. Um, the first two years were on and off while I was studying, um, and full-time it has been one year Do you see a big difference between South Africa and Norway? Well, the one is the weather. <laughs> and, you know, South Africa is a very warm country um, and Norway is a very cold country. Um, and I guess, in a way, I find South Africans to be a lot warmer in their social interactions than um, Norwegians are. Norwegians are a little bit more reserved Um, but of course, as everybody says, once you make a Norwegian friend, you've, you know, you've got a friend for life and you get to know how warm Norwegian people can be. Um, but that was one of the things that I struggled with in the beginning, um, getting to know Norwegians. I guess the other difference is, you know, I was talking to someone today about the idea of solidarity and how, you know, Norway and other Nordic states are founded on principles of solidarity. Um, and I guess in South Africa, I find that solidarity expressed at an individual level and at a community level. Um, and here I find that it's a very structural macro thing where you pay your taxes and you know you contribute to the social welfare state as an act of solidarity mm. um, but I don't know that it's fully expressed at an individual level between people um, yeah so I think those are some of the differences mm. and this inclusive books is is like you said is uh, on diversifying uh, children literature why is it so important I think it's important to focus on children for two reasons. One is because children are incredibly vulnerable um, or can be incredibly vulnerable. And it's important for us to look out for their best interests because they often literally don't have the voice to express their needs. Or even if they do have the voice, they don't have the power to use that voice to express and have their needs taken care of. And the other reason is that children are the future. They are the future custodians of the societies that we live in and the world. And the kinds of children we raise today has an impact on the kind of society we will have in the future. When you grew up, you know, did you read books um, that was representative for, for you? The short answer to that question is no. Mm. Um, I enjoyed the books that I read when I was growing up. I read a lot. I loved to read. But none of the books had people that looked like me. And they were all in English. And, you know, that was fine for me because I was educated in English. So I didn't feel like I was necessarily missing out. But I didn't have books in my home language. Um, the only book that I read in my home language actually was the Bible. That's how I taught myself how to read Isikosa. And also a lot of the stories that I was reading were not even from South Africa. They were from the UK and the US. And so, no, they, a lot of the books that I read did not represent me at all. Mm. But I don't know that I felt like something was missing. Why is that? 
I'm not sure. <laughs> now I feel like I need to go home and think about this. <laughs> because theoretically speaking, I know that that's a problem. Mm. And I'm an advocate for, for inclusion and diversity in children's literature. But I didn't particularly feel like something was missing from the books that I read. And maybe a part of that was, you know, what do you have available to you, you know, in its entirety? So, for example... The books that I read didn't represent me, but I had access to literature and, I mean, I had access to media and television programs that did represent me. So I think maybe the need was met through a different medium. And so I didn't necessarily feel like I was completely missing out or completely unrepresented. And I guess also the language aspect of it and also the fact that I did go to a school where the culture was very Eurocentric and where, you know, the approach was very assimilationist. So... As much as I couldn't see people that looked like me, I was being molded in a way at school that made me ref- that made me relate to some of the stories that I was reading because that was my reality at school every day. But I think the major differences would have been like, you know, my home, you know, where I grew up for the first eight years. I, I lived in a township. And then when I was eight years old, we moved to a former white suburb. And then maybe, you know, that started to reflect where I was living. Um, but still, it wouldn't, you know, reflect family dynamics or the fact that I had a single mother and, you know, lived with aunts and uncles and so on. But I don't know. I think I need to think about it. But I think a major aspect is that I was reflected in other mediums Mm. um, and that I did go to a school. And so on a day-to-day basis, some part of my reality was reflected in the books. And also, I think I didn't read a lot of picture books growing up. I think the first picture books that I read were at school by the time I was seven or eight. And so that was maybe two years of picture books. And then I started to read books that only had text, you know, um, pre-teen and teen books. And so then it wasn't an, a, you know, a matter of images, but the actual stories that were being told. And so I used to read a lot of Sweet Valley, for example, and Animorphs, and those didn't feel completely unfamiliar because what was happening in the halls of Sweet Valley High was similar to, you know, my former white primary school, my former white high school. And so it wasn't completely foreign. Hmm. I think I can relate, actually. I'm brought up in England. I'm born in England. um, And I didn't see a lot of books represent me. I didn't see a, a Chinese character. It was only until Mulan came out, you know, Disney, and, and I thought, oh, wow. But I also known about her before that, you know, mm. there was um, a poem in Chinese about um, Fa Mulan. And, um, and also, like you said, you know, there's other means to, to um, in media that I can uh, relate to. Mm. You know, uh, we watch TVB. Uh, I think most Hong Kongers knows about TVB. And, um, and there were so many TV series that I, I see uh, female uh, Chinese characters there. And and so I think we, we source out um, elsewhere uh, to find that representation. But equally at the same time, we would think like, well, you know, we're, we're now in Norway. And, you know, for me being in the UK, uh, you have very multicultural societies. And with a multicultural society, you would love to see some kind of representation in media and in literature as well. So when it came with the inclusive books, you you're, um, you wanted to to show diversity there. What what's your journal like setting up the inclusive books? What, what was it like? You know, what were the challenges that you you faced um, when building inclusive books? I think when it came to starting inclusive books, the first major thing was deciding that I wanted to do it because I finished my masters and I wasn't ready to start doing my PhD. And I was talking to friends about different interests that I had, um, and I had to make a decision about which interests I wanted to explore and initially the idea was to write a children's book that I could potentially turn it into a a series 
um, because that was a tangible thing that I could produce. It could be written in English or Isekosa, which is my home language, and it could be translated in Norway because that's where I am. But then the more I started to investigate a bit about Norwegian children's literature, I found that there was a lack of diversity, and specifically in picture books. Um, and I think picture books are important because, and this is just sort of tying back to what I was saying about I didn't realize I wasn't represented because when I was younger, I didn't read a lot of picture books. And I did for about a year or two at school, and then I read text-only books. But now we know that parents, more than before, are encouraged to read to their children from as young as possible. And so more parents are being encouraged to buy books. And, you know, the younger the child is, the more pictures there are and maybe the less text. And so I found that picture books, you know, which, you know, parents are being encouraged to buy and to read to their children don't reflect the reality that I saw around me in Oslo. Um, and that was a bit worrying um, and it just was uncomfortable. And I then started to think about, okay, I'm one person, I can't produce a hundred books in one year. What is the best way to do it? And that was when I decided to see what other people had written in English and that could be translated into Norwegian. Um, and so that's you know how that decision making came about. And starting inclusive books was actually not difficult. So it was one making the decision and then the thinking about all the things that come into starting a publishing company. I had a lot of people in my personal network in South Africa and in Norway who were in publishing who I could ask a lot of questions um, about how does it work with translating rights? How does it work with creating an ebook? I mean there's a wealth of information on the internet. People who gave me tips about how to start a company or register a company in Norway, what kind of visa I could apply um, for to start a company in Norway. I also attended a tax course at the tax office here in Oslo. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I spoke to people about funding and so on. So I had a lot of resources in my personal network that made it very easy to start. And then also I found out um, in South Africa that there's an organization called BookDash, which has open, which has, which produces literature for children under Creative Commons license. So then that eliminates having to pay for rights yeah, mm. to begin with. Um, and that was also something that I came across in my research and through speaking to other people. So a lot of things actually came together quite easily in the beginning. Um, and it wasn't very expensive to start initially. Uh, let's dive in a little bit more into uh, Norway's children literature. Uh, what are the statistics of the diversity in children literature and what are your thoughts around it? What can be done about the situation? Um, I think besides statistics, I mean, if you just go to the library or if you go to a, a bookstore, it's very clear who's on the cover of books. And then I think when it comes to statistics, there aren't a lot of statistics collected about this problem in Norway. Um, the US collects stats and the UK collects stats but uh, in Norway there isn't really but there has been a lot of research or a lot of conversations about it I found you know articles from as far back as 2010 and the general consensus is and has been for almost 10 years now is that there isn't diversity and that that is an objective fact it's it's not that if you look deeper if you visit more libraries or visit more bookstores and it's also an admission from the publishing houses themselves they're interviewed i think in two separate articles this year in Klasse Company and in Aftenposten where representatives from you know the publishing houses say we don't have diversity we agree it's a problem but do you find there's a, any sort of resistance from the publishing institutions here in Norway no. i don't think it's resistance i think it's indifference because once again it, it doesn't affect you or your child it doesn't affect maybe your nephew or your niece or your neighbor it's not a national problem it's those people's problem um so it's an indifference to the problem but i also think it's the idea that diversity in books is only there for minority children i think it i think diversity in books is also important for children of the majority population i think it's important um, for them to be able to 
have a window into the realities of other children, their neighbors and their peers. There's more people and characters and realities to get to know. There's more, you know, spaces of fantasy to lose yourself in from different perspectives. Um, there's more folklore. You know, there's just different perspectives that the children have an opportunity to actually engage with rather than, than the same kind of story mm-hmm. from people who come from a similar kind of reality. And then I think just in terms of an, of an instrumental perspective, I think it's good for both minority and majority children to see encounters between different kinds of people in the books that they read. So when I talk about diversity, I'm not necessarily talking about producing books that only have black children or only have children of Asian descent or South Asian descent, you know, if you're not talking about East Asian descent, but having stories where all children are represented and they're engaging with each other. Um, I think like one of the things that I, that I like to also talk about is, is what harm can come out of misrepresentation and what negative consequence can happen if we don't have diversity in, in the children's literature, literature or in, in media in general. What are your thoughts around that? You know, what, what would you say is the negative consequences? The major negative consequences is that from a very early stage, even before children are able to fully articulate their needs, the message that they're being sent through the media that they engage with, whether that's literature or through television, if they don't see themselves, they're being told that one, you don't exist. You don't exist in society. And if at the very least you're aware or you assert your existence, that society refuses to acknowledge it and or that you're invisible to the people around you, the people who create things, the people who paint a picture of society. So it's saying to you, you don't exist or we don't acknowledge your existence. And that does something to to someone's perception of their self-worth and pride in who they are and pride in who people who look like them are. And it can it can make, you know, children want to be like the people that are portrayed. So rejecting their own identity in order to reflect what society is telling them is of value or is worthy of being recognized. And I think the other thing is in a society like Norway where, you know, Although the number is growing, the minority is still quite a minority as compared to the majority. It's also saying to people, you aren't part of Norwegian society. You you don't belong here. Um, and I think that can have a negative um, impact on children's um, identity formation and self-worth. Yes, to be, to be excluded, to be quite explicitly excluded and ignored. Um, And I think even if you talk about it from outside of a literature and media perspective, everybody knows what it feels like to be ignored or to be excluded. It's not a nice feeling. And so imagine that being your daily experience from the time from before you can remember. And it's not just coming from, you know, friends. Um, It's coming from, you know, the major cultural mechanisms uh, or tools for cultural transmission in society where you've been consistently reminded that you don't exist or we don't acknowledge your existence you're not of value you don't belong Um, and then what happens is sort of a circular relationship or a reinforcing relationship because media portrays the people that are valued by society so if media is not portraying you it's a message that you're not valued I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like uh, it reminds me of an article that recently got published by Afton Polston, Mm. where they use statistics from SSB um, talking about the likelihood of uh, children of immigrants becoming criminals. And it's almost like a label you you slap on all the children uh, of immigrant parents, you know, that um, that they're criminals. I mean, me being a journalist and understanding like diversity in journalism, 
the only figure I got was from 2014. And uh, it's only 1% of all journalists in Norway with a minority background. And I'm constantly seeing in media um, how they're portraying immigrants and how they're talking about issues of immigrants uh, or immig- uh, issues of migration. And that is quite worrying because you have the majority looking at me and my child in a different way. So that's the other, I mean, uh, the point that I was hoping to make in this article that I gave you to read which I haven't made because I, I wasn't quite sure how to articulate the point, is that in one, in one uh, way you can say that if you're not reflected in media, children's books more specifically from the time you start you know, reading children's books or having children's books being read to you, you're told that you're non-existent or your, your existence is not being acknowledged or you're not valuable enough to you know, put in the pages of a book. But you know, the other thing is that I don't believe that children of minority background are invisible to Norwegian society. I think that when they are spoken about, they're, they're visible, but they're visible as a problem. And so when they're spoken about and they're spoken about in media, it's always something negative. Um, and one of the reasons why I didn't say this actually or didn't address it in the article is because I just didn't have time to do the research and to actually look at the statistics or, the, or how often minority children are, um, are talked about in media and what exactly is said. But I had the perception that it would be often negative. And so we see you, but we see you as a problem. And I think one of the roles that children's books can play, whether it's picture books or whether it's you know books for preteens where there's only text, is that you paint a different picture. You counter the narrative of children of minority background as problems. Um, because that is, you know, it can be a persistent narrative that's supported by, you know, media reports um, outside of sort of entertainment media or, or education media, but just, you know, journalism. Hmm. There, there's a term for this, isn't it? Symbolic annihilation. Um, yes. So what symbolic annihilation is, is that certain groups are not represented in the media. Um, and George Gerbner, the guy who first used the term uh, symbolic annihilation, an American academic. So George Gerbner said that seeing yourself represented in the fictional world is an acknowledgement of your existence. And if you're not reflected in media, you are symbolically annihilated, which is to say that you don't exist. And that has quite a, you know, thinking about how we form our own cultural identity. And if we don't have someone that we can look up to, you know, have a role model and going, um, that's me, you know, how do we sort of build our ourselves how do we be confident um and you talked about this earlier on about self-worth how do we build upon these um positive attributes to ourselves and to our cultural identity you know and i i struggled and you have to kind of carve that narrative yourself Hmm. rather than having someone else carve that narrative for you and i started thinking a lot about not only literature and media and, and and perhaps on an even individual basis when you talk to someone that you kind of have to empower yourself in order to um, carve that narrative. But how do you empower yourself when the society around you is already putting you down? I don't know what your thoughts are around that. Um, so in South Africa and I think in a lot of other African countries as well, we have this idea or the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. And I would, I guess I would, that would mean to raise a healthy, well-adjusted child. And so your parents have the primary responsibility to care for you, but so does the rest of society and the rest of society should not be causing you any harm. And I think, you know, there's only so much parents can do, especially because, you know, nowadays children spend a lot of time at school, they spend a lot of time with their friends. And so your parents can do their best at home to instill 
a positive self-identity, pride in, you know, whatever cultural background and also support the fact that you're, you know, in a different country to your parents and you can be proud of that as well and you can merge those two identities. But if you go outside and you're being told, you know, by your peers explicitly and implicitly by the media at school, um, in the history that you're taught, that there's something wrong with some parts of you, it becomes difficult to develop a positive sense of identity or a fully positive sense of identity. There are parts of yourself who you who you might reject. And I think that, you know, so in that way, all sectors of society have a responsibility to contribute to children's positive um, um, identity formation and pride in who they are. And pride in who you are does not, you know, mean that you ridicule other people's identities or ridicule other people's backgrounds. I think someone who has a pride in themselves is also able to respect, you know, how other people identify and the value that other people attach to their own uh, cultural backgrounds. Mm. I see also on a, on a bigger picture as well is that if you don't really understand, you know, a certain ethnic group or a certain segment of the population, there's a situation that I see is a divided society, a very polarized society. So when I'm, whenever I'm talking about this or writing about this, I try to be very careful not to draw a direct correlation between what happens inside children's books and the kinds of society we want to build or things that are wrong with society. I, I'm not saying that children's books are going to fix issues of social divisions. Mm. And I think that or, or, or stop social division from happening. Um, but I think that everybody has a role to play. I think each sector of society has the potential to contribute positively um, to building social cohesion. And it might be that, you know, if you don't contribute, it doesn't necessarily mean that, like, there's a direct correlation between your lack of contribution and social cohesion in mm. society. But if you do contribute, you're, you're doing more to help the cause of social cohesion, to help people feeling included, um, to help children especially feeling included, to help build an environment where future generations can say, okay, we see all these different people came together to help build a society where everybody feels that they, they can belong. So I always try to be very clear mm. um, that children's books are one of the ways in which we can contribute. Um, and I think they're especially important because they communicate a certain message to children specifically. And so, you know, the rest of society aside, what do you want to say to children about who they are and how they're valued and whether or not they belong? Starting from there and then thinking about how, you know, those actions to include, you know, minority children can contribute to greater social cohesion. Mm. Who would you say is um, inspirational for you in this journey for you to take on this, um, this adventure of setting up inclusive books and advocating for diversity and intrusion literature? Was there someone special or something that kind of inspired you? A moment that you went, okay, I'm going to do this or something. I think I'm inspired by seeing people and children especially being happy and whole and being the best versions of themselves. And I think what I try to do for myself and for other people is to find a way to contribute to ensuring that people and children especially are happy and that they're able to express themselves positively and, and be themselves. And I think that what I want for my life, even if I can't, you know, change the course mm. of the, you know, the course of history, is to know that I did something to make the world a better place for at least one 
person or one segment of society because I'm very aware of the fact that had it not been for people who had done things in the past, little things and big things, um, I wouldn't be sitting here. Mm. Um, What's your vision then? For children to be happy and to be healthy, to have opportunities to be the different versions of themselves um, and to feel like they belong and that they're not outsiders on earth. Yeah, so my academic career and some of my entrepreneurial activities and other things that I want to do in the future have always had to do with helping or having a positive impact on people. But as I've grown older, that has become more focused on children. So I think I want to continue doing that, is creating a world where children can be happy. Fantastic. <laughs> I think it's bad too. I, mean. I don't know. It's, it's always like, I don't know, it just... Well, I have a daughter, so everything I do is, is for my daughter's future, yeah. you know, uh, having more representation and diversity in journalism and in the media, and that's that's my mission, you know. Um, and equally at the same time, I understand as entrepreneurs, we push so hard, um, you know, we always give up our life almost uh, for this mission. And sometimes, you know, I'm getting to a point where I'm kind of having to sit back a little bit and worry about my own mental health and, and my own physical health as well and going, I, I, I'd like to have some time off. So I, I'm I'm there now because I've had to go back to the drawing board and to think about my business, the direction where I want to take it, the kind of impact that I want to have with it, from where I want to run it. And so I'm taking a step back for those reasons, but also because, you know, it's, it's very difficult running a business by yourself in a foreign country. And I've met some very serious challenges. So starting was very easy. <laughs> mm. And then, you know, things got real. And now I'm at a place where I'm also just trying to stabilize myself from a psychological perspective, um, but also from a financial perspective, because I can't give two inclusive books or, you know, contribute to whatever vision I have for myself or for the future if I'm not okay and if my cup is empty. Mm. Um, and I realized that, you know, the more th stressful things got with the business, the less good I was for the business because I, I, I couldn't, I was not operating at my best. So what I'm giving to the business is not my best. Mm. Um, so that's where I'm at as well. I'm, I'm taking a short break and I'm recuperating and uh, stabilizing and refilling my cup. Mm. I think we all need it, to be <laughs> honest with you. And, um, you know, I, I keep thinking back, you know, I mean, uh, there's so many talks and conversation I had lately. And one of the things that pops up is that it's so hard being a foreign entrepreneur here. I don't know about how you feel about that and whether other countries are, are better. I don't know. So I haven't tried to be an entrepreneur anywhere else. Um, I know that, you know, in South Africa as well, a lot of people will say the legislative environment, you know, and, and funding and so on is not helpful to people who are trying to start small and medium enterprises. And so there are issues there as well. But I've never been immersed in the South African entrepreneurial space. So I don't really know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I know that it's difficult, but I don't know how difficult it is, why it's difficult and which sectors it's particularly difficult in. Mm. I've only done this in Norway, um, but it's been difficult for me because I am a foreigner and I applied for a self-employment visa. Um, and the restrictions that are placed on me as a result of, you know, immigration laws pertaining to that visa make it more difficult for me to operate as an entrepreneur. For example, I'm only allowed to register a sole proprietorship. But the difficulty with a, so a sole proprietorship is that nobody 
I can't apply for funding. So, for example, if I wanted to apply to Innovation Norway, mm. that's there as a funding source, fantastic, but I can't apply because I have to have an AS to apply. I can't approach other investors because, you know, people don't invest money in a sole proprietorship. They invest money in a limited company. So that's been very... That has had a, a negative impact on what I can do. And among other things, I think that's been, you know, one of the most difficult things. So... And of course, it's different for different foreigners because, for example, somebody else, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how the immigration rules are if you're here as an employee of a company or if you're allowed to start an AS or not. I don't know. But it was, it's difficult, particularly in my situation, because of the kind of visa that I have. What would you like to have known uh, before you started on this entrepreneur journey people say aim high and and just believe that you can you know anything is possible and then you you might just achieve it um, but I think it's also uh, important to plan for if things don't go according to the best case scenario mm. so I wish I'd done that because we talked about indifference you talked about indifference from from perhaps a majority and perhaps not seeing diversity in children literature as uh, some kind of issue in some ways what do you think would be the solution then to this how can we i mean we talked a little bit about the the benefits of the majority of being open um, and tolerant of uh, others that are different from them and also accept them so i'm just kind of trying to understand in some ways your efforts of trying to um, raise an awareness of this you know um, and i guess the question again is is what can be done you know um, how do we move forward from here i think the one is so i know that the norwegian norwegian children's book institute has a an author education program and two of the positions are reserved and they're funded reserved for people of um of a background from latin america the middle east asia and africa so that's basically affirmative action um so one is attracting and training authors from minority background because they're more likely to write stories that provide greater diversity um because even if they're not thinking about diversity in stories they're going to write stories that reflect themselves um, so that's one thing. Um, I think another thing is for public institutions to find ways to encourage uh, publishers to to create more diverse and inclusive children's books. So, for example, the Norwegian Arts Council has buying schemes, and through those buying schemes, or through you know how they fund certain publishing projects, um, they can find ways to incentivize uh, publishers to create more diverse and inclusive literature. So I think those are the main things that I think could be can be done fairly quickly or can be done quite easily. But I think, yeah, it's just continued awareness raising for people to understand that this is something that that's important. It's not just people complaining for the sake of complaining. And that actually, you know, because often the complaining comes from adults and maybe you have, you can't be empathetic towards an adult, especially if they're talking about something that doesn't directly affect them. Yeah. But for people to remember that we're talking about children most vulnerable members of society and we need to do everything that we can to give them a healthy and happy upbringing um, and children's books have a, a part to play and they can contribute to creating a healthy and healthy healthy and happy upbringing for children for children mm. um, yeah cool well we'll have to wrap up um, if you could have one superpower what would it be when I saw this question I actually was very because I was interested in writing a series of books where we portray different women as superheroes, but with a human power, whether that's compassion or, you know, you're very good at putting other people first or you're very good at, you know, praising people or whatever. 
Um, and I think my superhuman power, or if I if I could have a superpower, can I take it in this direction? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could have a superpower, I could teleport. <laughs> I love to travel and I love being in different places and meeting different people. And I wish that I could get from one place to another um, without using transportation. But I think my superhuman power is empathy. And I want to continue to cultivate the sense of empathy that I have. It's because I think if we can all just, you know, extend a bit of empathy, it would be a lot easier to care for one another. That's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming in um, and uh, talking to us about uh, diversity in, in children's literature. Thank you for having me. Thank you.